0: Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 39? Psalm 39 will be our text this evening. And as we look at this psalm just as an introductory, most commentators agree that Psalm 39 is flowing out of Psalm 38. And Psalm 38 David acknowledged that his sin uh, brought upon him discipline from the Lord, a discipline that was um, a physical discipline, uh, that his body itself was, was being torn apart in God's chastising hand. And so when you get to Psalm 39, there's a reflection upon this that is taking place. In fact, it's, it's certainly a, a reflection because he begins by saying in verse 1, I said, which is in the past tense. And then you'll see the word was that's popping up. This was something that happened. So what Psalm 39 is is a reflection upon an event in his life where the Lord had punished him and brought discipline upon him because of his sin, and now he's looking back and reflecting upon what it was that took place. And we actually get to see the meditation of that. And one of the things that we, we see so clearly in this is that David in that despair, that trial, that discipline that he was, was facing uh, from the chastising hand of the Lord, it's there that he turns to the Lord and truly pours out his frustrations to God in deep despair. It shows us where we should take our trials, it shows us where we should take even our complaint and our frustrations. David will show us that he was tempted to take this to the wrong place. And oftentimes we're tempted to do likewise, as we'll see here. Now let's hear this word, beginning in verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, For what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. The Lord bless the reading of His Word. You'll notice in the subscription there it says to the choir master to Jeduthun. I always find it interesting these subscriptions that we find in the Psalms with these names of these people or these musical instructions, because a lot of times we have no clue what they mean, and just we have to just take that it's some sort of musical style and as a Musician, it's, it's always fascinating to me. and I, I, I just have this desire to be able to hear what the music would have sounded like when David composed it or when Jeduthun, who was a composer of music, a singer, uh, what his composition would have sounded like. And that is a great curiosity of mine. But we see this Jeduthun pop up in Scripture in First Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 1, in, in David's organization of the musicians that would be those that would, that would conduct the music and would write the musical scores that would be sung, we see his mention, First Chronicles 25 verse 1, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun who prophesied with lyres with harps and with cymbals, the list of those who did this work and their duties. So it's fascinating that when we we read of this psalm, we're we're reading of this deep crying out to God and dealing with practical aspects of life, lived in light of who God is as a holy God. But then we're also reading of this guy, Jeduthun, that was given this music that writes it out for people to sing. We're reading of real people that would have composed music for the glory of God to be sung at the temple in worship. And so we're reading a psalm that's a song. This is God's hymn book to be sung. And so we read of not only God's word, but we also read what is God's word for us to sing, to pray to recite and for our guidance. And David begins in the first three verses speaking of guarding his lips. He wants to guard his lips. And you notice he says, I will guard my ways, and that's usually speaking of the way of life, that I may not sin with my tongue, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, and that's what you would put upon an animal, so long as the wicked are in my presence. So he's saying that in the presence of unbelievers, he was determined to be silent. Uh, that he was resolved to do this, that he would even muzzle himself so that he would not speak in the presence of unbelievers. Now, what is the context is this, is that he's suffering, and so his resolve is this. His resolve is that he will not complain about his discipline. He will not take what the Lord is doing to him, and the frustration and the pain and the trials that he's experiencing, he will not parade those before the unbelieving or before the world as complaint. Very instructive, if we begin to think about this, if we think about what God's discipline is, And we recognize that God disciplines those whom he loves as a father. If we are under the chastising hand of God, it's then for our good, and it is an act of God's love, showing that he is our father. So then to complain is to scorn his love. It's to complain of his love. If his discipline upon us is an act of his love, then to complain of it is then to complain that God loves you. And so David is is, is guarded. Now I will say this as you begin to think about this, is that there are trials that we go to that, that result in certain types of sins. And here, in trials, Trial, what's tied to that is the tongue. And what damage we can do to the witness of Christ to complain in trial before unbelievers. And so he's determined that he will not do that. We ought to be determined that we will not do that, but rather in trial testify to the unique we have in Christ, because that stands out radically different before the world. So before the, the watching world in trial and suffering and under God's discipline, our message is one of silence, if it was to be complained, or it is one of testifying to the hope of a sovereign God that we have many ways, this is a warning to not violate the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. You know, we oftentimes think of that as using God's name in an unholy manner, and that is true, but David bore the name of God as God's anointed king, And if you are here tonight in Christ, you bear the name of disciple for the Lord in heaven. You bear the name Christian. You're part of the sect known as the way. You're known as that peculiar people called the church. We dare not ever want to ruin our testimony in the midst of trial and take that name that we have been given and violate it. And so David is determined, I will guard my ways, I'll put a muzzle on me, and maybe that's what we need to resolve to do at times as well. He says, I was mute and I was silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So he's talking about this bubbling up that's taking place inside of him. It's difficult to maintain His silence, and it says that his distress, it grew worse, and so it's that picture of its bubbling, it's continuing to exert pressure on it, it's ready to explode, and perhaps it's the wicked themselves that were trying to provoke him, maybe perhaps they were mocking him, and he wanted to open his mouth in complaint about this, and so he couldn't handle it anymore. Perhaps, in trial, you've experienced that, where it gets to a breaking point. That's where David's at. He cannot handle any more. So what does the faithful man of God do when he cannot handle it anymore? And this particular temptation to use his tongue in a sinful way is coming as a result of the distress he's he's experiencing. So what does he do? What should we do? Look what he goes on to say in verse 3. My heart became hot within me as I mused. And that mused word is as I sighed. As I sighed, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. He could not handle it any longer. And so it's going to come out. All that was building up inside of him. And so when he speaks... And he opens his mouth, I want you to notice, it's not to the wicked. His distress is described as, as a burning sensation inside of him, that his heart is hot. That inner motivation of, to, to, to lead us to action is what that means. And so when David can stand it no more, he needs to release or vent all of this inward frustration, but not to the wrong people, lest he sin. I'm going to assume we all have unbelieving friends. I'm going to assume we probably have um, unbelieving family members. I'm going to guess that in our circles of influence, there are those that are unbelieving. You Consider how we speak about God's providence in our own lives with them. It's very instructive for us. Very convicting. I think of where else we see I Guarded my mouth that I will not sin against you. And this is sometimes what we need to be praying for, is that in those moments where we want to share, we don't do it with the wrong people. And that's hard to do. We don't think always like David does. But we need to. We need to stop and consider what it is that our comes out of our mouth, communicates to an unbelieving world. We who hold to that absolute sovereignty of God, do we express that belief with unbelieving friends, family, or the world? So what does David do when he speaks with his tongue? Verse 4, oh Lord. He wants to take it to them. He's going to have to put a mu- muzzle on his mouth. He's tempted to take it to the wrong people, but he doesn't. And when he cannot handle it anymore, he's hit, he's hit the breaking point. He goes to God. And he says, Oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. So three things he asks of the Lord. Let me know how long I'm going to live. How much time do I have left? And when he says, let me know how fleeting I am. Let me know how frail I am. That is, let me know how much time I have left. And so as you look upon this, and you look back to verse 38, and you see David was at the brink of despair, here he's actually asking the Lord, let me know how much time I have left, because I'm almost there to the end. And he speaks of life as fleeting, Is that his life was frail. Now, typically, unless we're faced with tragedy or disease, maybe the loss of a of a friend, or or we we don't think about this. We don't really think about, especially when, when you're young, you don't you don't think about these type of questions. But the older you get, they, the more real they become. And David, in this point of despair, reflects upon that. Notice what he says. He goes into instruction mode in verse 5. He says, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And so from questioning God, how much, how much time do I have left? When will my role be called up yonder? He moves into the introspection of life, and he points out to us, really from verses 4 through 6, life is short. We, we know that intellectually, James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring for what is your life, for you are a mist that appears for a little little time and then vanishes. We're we're aware of that. We grasp that intellectually. But we tend to put it off. Until you, you really can't. That's where David's at. He can't put this thought off any more. And he says something so interesting that I would not have noticed unless I saw a Hebrew commentator on this. At the end of verse 5, he says something really interesting. He says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. If you translate that literally, it will be this. Every Adam, every Abel stands. Every Adam, that is Adam the man, every Abel, that is the son of Adam, stands and you can insert before God. Think about the flow of thought here, how David is actually tracing this idea of the brevity of life to the biblical narrative of creation and what took place there. What, What happened is Adam was given life, God breathed the life into him, and was going to be given the garden, and he could live there eternally. But he sinned, and sin brought death, and his son had a very short life. You think of the 900 some odd years that Adam lived... We think that's a long time. That was 900 years of living with the consequences of sin, which resulted in death. And having to see his son, Abel, tragically killed by Cain. It's a reminder that sin brought death into this world. And why? Do we see tragedy? Because sin brought it into this world. Sin brings death. And if, we, if we, we question that, we just look around, and David had to just look back to creation and see, well, Adam was given life, but he sinned, and the shortness of life and how tragic it can be. He continues to reflect upon this by saying, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. And then that could be this, is that it's an image or a purpose. But the imagery of what he's saying in this poetic language is that we walk around like a shadow going about life. And you see what we do in going about life. He says it at the end of verse 6, Surely for nothing they are in turmoil, and... Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. it. It rings of other poetic language we read in the Bible, and that is, is this: is that we just go about life with our day to day activities without really ever stopping to think about it. We're we're toiling constantly, and all that we worked for, we once we're gone, you know, we don't even know what's going to happen to it. When you think of all the things that are precious to us now, I think of the precious things that I have that are so valuable to me, what will happen to them when I'm gone? Well, I won't care. I won't care what will happen to them. But right now I do. Right now, I I take a treasured possession over things. Psalm 49 says, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish, and leave their wealth to others. This is a fact of, of life. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says in Chapter 2, verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after when. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. You ever watch those, those interviews where someone goes out on the street and asks just an utterly ridiculous question and to watch people and how they respond to it. You know, they'll say something ridiculous like, George Washington's now our vice president. What do you think of his, his work? And people are talking and not realizing, showing their ignorance. But if we went back 200 years ago, every single one of us, without question, would have known who he was. But, he, but even someone who was our first president of this country and such a remarkable individual is forgotten. I wonder if you just went and asked people who Moses was, if, just, if they would know, but yet Moses such a pivotal person. Or who was King David? Who was Solomon? You know, and in their day they were well known, but what the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us is true. One day they'll be forgotten. But there's an important thing here: is it says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow, that is, an image. You and I are image bearers. And if we're image bearers, that tells us there is a greater purpose for which we toil under the sun. And it is not for ourselves, but it is for God's glory. And so David reminds us of the brevity of life. It's not as something that is to bring us to despair or be depressing even. It's actually to encourage us. And he's going to do that here as he moves on to recognize where his source of hope is. It's not in toiling under the sun. It's not in what he has. It's not even in his health. It's not in any of those things. And here's where our hope lies, is where David's hope lies. And he says this in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And there's a turning point. David was in distress. He wanted to take those concerns to the wicked. He withholds it, but rather he goes to the Lord and takes it to the Lord. And in taking it to the Lord, it gives him perspective. And guess what happens? There's all of a sudden a turn in his language. His language goes from, boy, I am in bad shape, to now. He gives us a message of hope. It's after unloading his burdens to the Lord that he's able to express a change in height uh, in heart. As he says in verse 7, Lord, this is his expression of hope. This is his expression of trust and faith in God. He patiently waits for the Lord, even in the midst of distress and trials. And he appeals for relief, from the one who put him in distress as a result of his sin. And he goes on to say that his hope is in the Lord by, in verse 8, saying, Deliver me from all my transgressions, and do not make me the scorn of the fool. Deliver me, that is to forgive me, to remove the pain, remove the consequences of my sin from me. And so by David saying that, deliver me from my transgressions, by crying out to the Lord, he recognizes that it is his sin that has put him in this position. He says, it's my fault. I think that there's a a group of people being raised in this generation that will never know the words, that was my fault. I'm at fault. I take responsibility for it. But there's true peace in that. There's peace in that. And David shows us that. And he acknowledges it's his own transgressions That put him in this, it's his transgressions that made him feel the consequences of his sin. And he recognizes only the Lord can rescue him. And I want us to notice something else that ties us to the biblical narrative. He says, do not make me the scorn of the fool. That is, do not make me bear the reproach of Nabal. You remember Nabal? whose name means fool. It was the angry one. Would not feed David and his men? His heart struck him dead. He was viewed as a foolish man. He says, do not make me bear the reproach of Nabal. Do not make me the fool before people. He goes on to say, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. So he acknowledges that it is the Lord has brought this, and this is confession. He's confessing before the Lord. And what we have to understand about this and where we have to wrap our minds around in the idea of discipline from a heavenly father. And we say, yes, we understand that it is God's demonstration of love as our Father that he would bring discipline upon us. But we we tend to think that we we don't deserve it. And, And David perhaps was there as well. But as he is brought to utter despair and broken, it's there that he has this confession. And we have to know something about the discipline of God, something that David knew. God is holy. God is just. And any trials that David faced, he recognized were the result of sin. might not have always been his sin, but it's the result of sin. Because if there wasn't sin in the picture, would there be a need for discipline? No, so there's sin at the root of something. And in this case here, he acknowledges personally his own sin. And so he says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent, that is, I'm at the end of it, by the hostility of your hand. And that is very vivid language. He says, remove your stroke from me. That is, that he's on the brink of death. But then he goes on, I am, I am I'm at my end because of the, by the hostility of your hand, that is the weight of God's discipline upon him was bearing down so much that there was nothing left in him. He was at the end. He could not handle anymore. He's on the brink of death. And so he says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Discipline surely puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Especially when that discipline brings one almost to their final breath. And and he says that you consume like a moth what is dear to him. And this idea of the moth could be looked at in two ways. Either it's like a moth that is uh, destroying things, like you think of a moth and fabric, or some commentators say it's like the wing of a moth. If you've ever touched the wing of a moth, you get part of the moth on you and its wings are disintegrating. They, they don't have any substance to them. They just kind of fall apart. Either way, the picture is this idea of something that's very frail that just kind of disintegrates. And he says, you consume like a moth what is dear to him and most see that in the realm of the sinful pleasures of life. Those are the things that were dear to him. But what do we know about the sinful pleasures of life? It's like a moth's wing. It's very frail. It disintegrates. It's taken away. It's momentary. It's as momentary as life itself. And he concludes again with this saying of every Adam, every able. Again, Adam's somewhere around 900 years of life, when you look at the grand scheme of it, was relatively short. How long is, say, a thousand years in light of eternity? Well, it's nothing. It's nothing. It can't be, can't be measured. It's just nothing. And you think about the pleasures of life. So What, what is that? It's just a moment. And so he goes on and he closes us with this. He closes us with actually a plea to enjoy life. That might be a surprising end because we've seen how fleeting this life is, how frail life is, but David actually teaches us this, is that life here is a gift from God. We ought to enjoy it. We ought to seek to enjoy it. That's not wrong. That's actually just being thankful for God's grace. Look what he says Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. And so he's crying out that the Lord would hear him. And he uses this most interesting language For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. This is the king. This is the king who has control over all the land. This is a king that had uh, anything he wanted. But this king says that he is a sojourner. What is a sojourner? A sojourner is one without rights or property. And so he seeks help from one who is superior to him. This again is a perspective of life, isn't it? All things are God's. All of creation is His. Everything is His. It's not ours. It's His. He created it. And so His prayer here is this. His prayer is for grace, not what He deserves. Because we know what He deserves. He deserves what He's getting and more so. And so he says, You are permanent. I am but a mist. Please hear me. And I think David's again tying this idea to the biblical narrative here, in, into the idea of the law of God. And this reveals God's own character in Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Why? Why were they not to do that? Why was Israel not to do that? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. But when we get to the book of Hebrews, what do we learn is that we're all sojourners. We're all just walking through this life in like manner, that we're just moving forward. And it shows us God's own character of compassion. And so David then concludes with this request. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and be no more. In other words, take your hand of discipline off me so may, I may enjoy the remaining time I have left in life. Let me enjoy the time I have left. This is God's creation. He has given it to us for our blessing and our enjoyment. God has given us the blessing of family. God has given us the blessing of fellowship. God has given us the blessing of friendship. He has given us the blessing of food. He has given us the blessing of so many wonderful things. We're not to abuse it. We're to thank God for it. And we are to say, may we be able to use these things and enjoy them well, what do we make of all of this? Well, David's sin brought chastisement. It brought discipline upon him. It was physical, it was mental, it was spiritual. It was deep anguish, it was pain. It almost brought him to death, yet he resolved not to sin by complaint. So let us be careful with how we handle trials. Let us be especially careful with how we handle them in front of the unsaved and this trial that David faced, it brought reflection upon his life, and he, it made him consider life itself. And this is the things that we take away from what David gathered. Life is brief. There's a brevity in life. It comes and it goes very quickly. We should not take that for granted. We see that he teaches us that life is in vainly working for things as we're mere shadows consider what it is that we work for and how we work for those things and what our ultimate goal and purpose is in those things. We also see that in life, there are momentary things that are actually destructive for us, that bring harm upon us and are temporal and will be destroyed. But he says this, is that Look away from me, that, that is, for this purpose, I may smile again before I depart and am no more. There is a fullness of life that we desire. Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 10, says, I came to give them life and give it more abundantly. You can only experience the fullness of life. The experience that Adam had in Eden is only given back to us in Christ. In Christ, everything that's lost in Adam is restored. So the fullness and the wonderful joys and peace and contentment that you have in life, they're only experienced in Christ. And here's why. David's fear was that he would speak before the wicked and thereby sin. But there's one greater than David that actually before the wicked was silent. In Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. David's greater son was silent before those who would execute him. And in him, because he was silent, because he did not open his mouth, we may experience the smile and joys of this life even now because in Christ we have a fullness of life. Our eternal life is present. It is now. And we may enjoy it in Christ. And in Christ, we may enjoy it because the chastisement laid upon him was laid upon him so we may experience the fullness of life now and in eternity. There was only one that was silent before the wicked and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy that we have and we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded of the brevity of life, but we're also reminded of the great joy you give us in this life and the great hope we have of what comes in eternity. May we set our hope upon the Lord Jesus, set our hope upon that which you offer by your free grace,